Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you. Keep that Bible as our gift to you. Bring it back every Sunday as we look at God's Word together. At the beginning of each year, I take at least one Sunday, usually more than one, to provide our congregation with where we are and where we need to go under the heading, the state of the church. Our nation's constitution requires that the president report each year to Congress regarding the state of the union, and I've come to believe that that's a good practice for churches as well. Now, I said these state of the church messages take place at the beginning of the year, but here we are in February, and I'm just now getting around to it. That's because although this was slated to begin the first Sunday in January, we had begun to receive reports of many, many of our families who had fallen ill, most of them with Omicron, that latest strain of the coronavirus. We were also scheduled to resume all of our ministries last month, following the holiday break, but since it would take weeks at least for that new variant to run its course, we've decided to begin 2022 in February. That turned out to be a good call since the first few weeks of January, our attendance was the lowest I've seen it since the early days of our church. That was almost entirely due to sickness, but the weather conspired as well to keep uh, folks away. Starting today and throughout this month then, we look to get back to normal in terms of our ministry offerings, and over the next few weeks, start the year, the practical year, with the state of the church addresses. So let's pray now and ask God to help us as we do that. Our Father, we thank you that we are here. I'm thankful to see so many brothers and sisters throughout January we were unable to see. Many of us have been ill, and we thank you for the recovery that you've provided. And Lord, though we believe everything comes from your hand, and we have to adjust to what you allow, we are delighted to be get back to some semblance of normalcy now. And to look forward to this coming year and the ministry initiatives that we believe will please you and advance your work. And so we ask you to grant us attentiveness, grant us unity as we think about over the next few weeks, the things that we are going to pursue. And as always, Lord, this is all according to your will. And if you choose to change our path, as has happened the last couple of years, then, Lord, we will gladly submit to what you have. We pray that you will be pleased in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in a bit, but I have a somewhat long introduction. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to seek to remind us of the importance of what the Lord has called his people to do, and then focus on some specific initiatives that we seek to carry out, both short-term and long-term. Our long-term objectives are embodied in an imaginary journal entry that I have used for years to describe our church's first 15-year plan, and then having completed that, we are now in the midst of our current 10-year plan. The journal entry is one I imagine being able to write on a Sunday in the year 2027, September 26 of 2027 to be exact. Now for those of you that are sticklers and you remember me going through these over the last many years, this uh, journal entry, uh, you may remember that 
uh, the dates when I've talked about this in the past. The 10-year plan was to end in 2026, not 27. But we pushed it out a year because, frankly, all of the craziness of the last two years has meant that we've lost the equivalent of a year of ministry traction toward our goals. So our 10-year plan is going to cover 11 calendar years and end in 2027, September 26th of that year. And on September 26th of 27, in about five and a half years, I expect to be able to journal the following. This evening, we celebrate our 26th anniversary with our annual celebration dinner. We expect 400 adults to attend, as our church now has 700 who are members or regular attenders. We're having it in our new auditorium because the Gym Fellowship Hall, which is the old auditorium, will not seat that many for dinner. About 40% of those who've come to CBC in the last decade came to Christ through our ministry as we made contact with them through our evangelistic ministries such as Upward Sports, Christianity Explored Home Study, Discovering God series, Worldview Discussion Sessions, and the intentional outreach, even through our in-reach ministries, to children, teens, young adults, men and women. Others began attending by word of mouth or hearing about us through our mailers, our door hangers, newspaper ads, yard signs, and other forms of advertising. Still others came because they saw our lighted building driving north on port. They found material help through our Community Cares Mercy Ministries or spiritual help through our Family Life Ministries to parents, couples, and seniors, etc. or via our Community Counseling Center and Recovery Ministries. Still others read about us on Pastor Ken's Church Matters blog. Whether young or old, or young or old in the Lord, all have been offered opportunity to grow through holistic discipleship that addresses mind, affection, and will. Each of our frontline ministries has a target objective of either learning, loving, or living, but all at least touch on all three. They have learned as their minds have been fed in children's ministries that have taught through an intentional scope and sequence. Our teens have received thorough worldview training and our adults have benefited from ongoing Bible education. But each demographic has also been given avenues to love God and others and live for his purpose. All have progressed in Christ-likeness on what we call the road to maturity, though at various rates. We have made use of our resource center for articles and DVDs and books as it functions as a not-for-profit bookstore to our members. But all of us have battled sin and its effects. So many have been helped by our crisis ministries for restoration in order to be put back on the road to maturity. The spiritual growth of our church has resulted in numerical growth. And that's necessitated a commensurate expansion of leadership. Our leadership now has double what it was 10 years ago. And our pastoral team is now at eight, including pastoral interns. Most of those on both the leadership and pastoral teams have been trained in our own men's and leadership ministries. One of the interns is training for church planting, the second time that we'll be sending out a trained planter with a group of 50 members as the initial core group. The first plant is in Huron Township, and CBC is seeking God's direction for the second location. In between, we participated in church planting efforts through a network of like-minded churches pooling resources to advance the biblical mission. Two weeks ago, 
we held our third annual church health conference for pastors and leaders, put on jointly by CBC and our church plant in Huron Township. We've also been asked to participate in three church rescue operations, whereby CBC provides a team to oversee the church's operation and nurse it back to health. Last year, we had our third foreign missions trip as we visited the Shermans in Zambia, helping with projects at the Central Africa Baptist College there. This morning's message was delivered by our senior pastor designee as our intentional transition plan moves to its conclusion. It's been years in the making, and the congregation is alive with excitement and gratitude, confident that the Lord has provided the right man to lead his church forward. That confidence has come through a thorough examination of his character and doctrine and skills, and he and his family have spent several years at CBC serving and growing so that the church is united behind the leadership of one of our own. We went through a lot to get to this point. Some things we tried just didn't work out. We had to endure the pain of disciplining some disobedient members. We've experienced the sweet sorrow of losing some brothers and sisters to this life, but rejoice that they've gained their reward in the next. We've had to maintain, uh, remain steadfast through the latest fads and trends in ministry and the ever harder opposition of an increasingly secular society. But by God's grace, we are now an epicenter church whose faithfulness to the gospel is not only having impact in Trenton and the surrounding area, but in regions of our nation and world. God has continued to provide the resources necessary to fuel the vision, as his people have stewarded their resources, giving of themselves and their treasure, and many leave a financial legacy for the mission when the Lord calls them home. At age 65, I look forward with great anticipation to the Lord's work in the next five-year church plant. Well, that's a mouthful. A lot there, and we look to pursue what remains to be done in the five and a half years that are left in that 10-year plan. So I'll be talking about some of that next week and perhaps the week after. The Community Cares Ministry, Community Counseling Center, the Road to Maturity, and so on. But importantly, how we help to resource these as, as well. Now that journal entry mentions folks leaving a financial legacy for the mission, which, our legacy which is our legacy fund, and I'll describe that in the weeks ahead. That journal entry that I just read is available for you to pick up. We printed it, both single sheet, double sided, and it's available at our Welcome Center. Now I give that to you at the beginning of each year because I learned years ago the principle that Resources follow vision. Many organizations, including churches, mistakenly believe their problem is a lack of resources. You know, we would love to do that, we just don't have the money. Or we'd love to do that, we just don't have the manpower. But all things being equal, the reason we lack the resources, the money and the manpower, is because we first lack the vision. If a church is going to advance the Lord's mission as opposed to simply maintaining the status quo, then those who are part of it must be motivated by a compelling vision. And if we each buy into the vision, then we will each be motivated to participate. Now thankfully, many of us get rightly excited about the possibilities of what God can do 
through us individually and then collectively as his church. But when some hear a, a bold vision, they recoil and they say things like, you know, I like a smaller church. I liked it better when our church was about 100 people. So if you fit into that category, I hope you'll still come in the next few weeks as I explain what we want to do with the resources God has given us and that he will give going forward. But for now, I'll say this. To make sure that folks understand that we are not simply about numbers, whether attendance or finances. To make sure that people understand that we say in our newcomers orientation, four-week class that we will offer again next month starting on the 20th of next month, March 20th. If you're a newcomer, if you've never gone through our newcomers orientation, mark that down, March the 20th, our second hour each Sunday for four weeks. And I lead that. We give you a notebook of material about our church. And in it we say that our objective is church health, not church growth. But all things being equal, healthy churches grow spiritually and numerically. And if we're not, then we need to examine why. There may be a good reason why, but we need to ask. Further, our objective is simply to be the most effective disciple-making branch of the church that we possibly can. And that, friends, that objective should be true of every church. If that means 40 people after you've done all that you can to advance the mission, then thank God for his work. If that means 400 people after we've done all you can to build people and send people and plant churches, thank God for the advance of his work. But we should not be simply 40 because we like it that way, or 400 or 700 simply because we want to build our own fiefdom. Whatever a church's size, it should be striving to move God's mission forward. And then whatever God produces providentially from that effort, we will thank him for. In our case, God has positioned us to do what has happened to this point, and we believe he's positioned us to accomplish what is laid out in our vision. If he chooses to change that, of course we submit to his will. But we will not stay put simply for nostalgia or personal comfort. The size of a church should not be determined by our likes and dislikes, but rather by what God chooses pr to produce through our obedience to his mission. And make no mistake, God really cares about his work and its advance deeply. He keeps track of it in the book of Acts, to which we will return after we conclude the State of the Church series. And he teaches us how much he cares about his work in the passage that we will look at in just a bit in 1 Corinthians 3. In this opening message of the State of the Church mini-series, I want to remind our congregation that each of us has a vital role to play in the advance of the Lord's mission. There is absolutely no valid reason for one who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and has access to His Word to live an aimless life. God has given us a cause, an objective, a mission, and a purpose. And He's gifted every person here to be involved in the work that he's doing in his world. It begins with Jesus' final words to his first followers on earth and before he ascended back to heaven in what we call the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The mission was not only for 2,000 years ago, but carries through the present time until the end of the age, Jesus said. We are on this earth for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and gathering believers together in local assemblies where they can be trained, that is edified for the work of the ministry, and so they in turn are equipped to proclaim Christ, and so believers are gathered and new churches are established and the work of Christ multiplies throughout the world. That is the mission as you see it laid out in Scripture. The Bible tells us that God has equipped every believer to participate in that work. God is so concerned that his work be carried out that he's told us that he's going to evaluate how we have used what he has given and pursued what he has commanded. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now you should have received an outline when you came into the auditorium this morning. And I say, first of all, in that outline that God cares about his work. Did you know that there is going to be a judgment, an evaluation for believers over what we have done with what the Lord has given and assigned to us? The Bible says this, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. One commentator says of the judgment seat, it refers to the elevated platform on which victorious athletes receive their crowns, much like the medal stand in the modern Olympic Games. In the New Testament, it was used of the judgment seats of Roman rulers like Pilate and Herod and Festus. There was also a bema seat, the judgment seat at Corinth, where unbelieving Jews unsuccessfully accused the Apostle Paul before the Roman proconsul Gallio. A person was brought before a bema to have his or her deeds examined in a judicial sense for indictment or exoneration or for the purpose of recognizing and rewarding some achievement. Now, if you have understood what the Bible teaches about our salvation and the fact that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are covered, past, present, and future, you might rightly ask, then why is there a judgment for me if all of my sins have been covered? Well, please understand that this Bema seat judgment, this judgment seat of Christ, is not a judgment with regard to whether one goes to heaven or hell. In fact, the Bible teaches that there is a separate and distinct judgment for those who die without Christ. It's called the great white throne judgment, and it's referred to in Revelation chapter 20. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God says your eternal destiny is sealed. You are going to heaven. But God will evaluate our lives, every one of us. And our goal ought to be that when we stand before the one who loved us and who gave himself for us, that we be found to have pleased him with our lives. And that's why the verse just before the one that's on the screen says this, we make it our goal to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So what I'm talking about today from 1 Corinthians 3, what the Bible is telling us, friends, 
is that we all ought to all ought to be all about pleasing Jesus with the lives that he's given us. Pleasing Jesus with the gifts that he has distributed to us. God cares about what he has commanded and he'll evaluate our lives in light of it. And God cares about the mission of the church so much that not only will he evaluate our obedience to it, he issues a warning to any who would harm it. Look at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. What is this holy temple spoken of? Three chapters later in chapter 6, the Bible speaks of our individual bodies as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar. It says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were brought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, that's clearly referring to our individual physical bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in chapter 3, it sounds the same, but it's actually different. Instead of referring to our individual bodies, that passage in chapter 3 is referring to the church collectively as God's temple. In the language that your New Testament was originally written in, Greek, they, unlike in English, are able to differentiate between the singular you and the plural you. You know, when we say you, we can be talking about an individual person, you, or we can say you talking to a collective group, but they're spelled the same. And so the context has to, has to tell you, but in Greek, they're actually spelled differently if it's singular or if it's plural. And here in chapter 3, it's plural, spelled that way. You know, those of us who are from the South, I've told you this before, we have a way of handling this. We just say, all y'all. So that means that's the plural you for, for us. But in Greek, they spelled it differently, and that's what it is in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And the context in chapter 3 is about the local church in the city of Corinth and some of the problems that they were having there. And God is issuing this warning. If you divide God's church, if you harm God's church, I, God, will deal with you. Passages like that, in all honesty, give me great comfort as a pastor. Really. Because sin being what it is, if you're in ministry for any length of time, there will be diatrophies who arise within congregations. That's the name of a person in the book of 3 John in your New Testament. Diotrophes, this is what it says, Diotrophes who loves the preeminence and was causing problems. But God says, I'll take care of it. And I have found that to be true. I haven't had many diatrophies to deal with, but some. And God himself takes care of it. And there were these divisions developing within this church in the city of Corinth, and that's the context of chapter 3. In fact, the heading in my Bible, just above verse 1 of chapter 3, says this, on divisions in the church. Some were causing divisions in the local assembly, and God's issuing this solemn warning. He will not tolerate such abuse of his work. Now why? Because God cares about his work in his church. So God has given us a mission. He's going to carry it out, and he cares about it enough to warn any who would do it harm. 
and to someday evaluate our participation in it. So I say, first of all, in your outline, God cares about his work, and secondly, God expects us to care about his work. The Bible teaches that there are no spectators in God's church. That all of us are to be involved using the gifts that he has given for that very purpose. So it's not just the green berets in the church, as it were, that are supposed to be involved. But rather, as I say in the outline, we are all deployed for God's work. You know, ostensibly, the clergy-laity distinction that existed for centuries in certain manifestations of the church historically, the clergy-laity distinction, ostensibly that was broken down in the Protestant Reformation. That is, you no longer have the priest that has to go to God for you, you can go to God directly yourself. All are priests before God, Jesus Christ is our high priest, and so the Protestant Reformation emphasized rightly the priesthood of every believer. But practically, this distinction between clergy and laity is unfortunately still alive and well. For too many people in our churches, we think we pay people to do ministry. But this passage teaches differently. It teaches what I say in the outline, that we all have an assignment. Because verse 10 says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. Now the one who wrote this, the Apostle Paul, says he did the work of a wise builder, and another person is building on the foundation that he laid. As we will see when we get back to our series in the book of Acts, when we get to chapter 18, it tells us that Paul went to the city of Corinth, to whom this letter of Corinthians is written. Paul preached Jesus Christ, and people came to the Lord. And Paul spent a year and a half with them, establishing them in their newfound faith. He refers to himself then as a wise builder. The word wise means expert. And the word builder in Greek, again the language of your New Testament, the word that's translated builder is pronounced architecton. We get our English word architect from it. Paul was the expert architect. In the ancient world, to be an architect meant a bit more than what many of us associate that with today. We think of an architect as the one who puts the blueprints together, they hand them to the builder, and then they've done their job. But even to this day, many architects still oversee the project, and it's my understanding, I'm no expert in this, but it's my understanding that actually the architect has to sign off on the project at the end, after the builder has done all of their stuff, even inspecting what the builder has done. That happened here for our building. When we moved into this building, we did major renovations here. Our architect did that very thing. They had to sign off at the end. They inspected the work of the builder. Just as, as an aside, I don't know if we have any architects or would-be architects here, but or anybody involved in a building project coming up. But architects can seem very expensive. Uh, 10%, I think, is the going rate. Maybe it's a little more now of the total project cost. If you have a million-dollar project, that means $100,000 goes to the architect. And you say, that's ridiculous. Just to put some drawings together. I can tell you from experience, if you have a good architect who knows the scope of the entire project, they are worth every penny you pay them. 
we were able to get our architects down to 8.5%. And they were worth every dime of that 8.5%. And in the ancient world, this word architect was used to, to describe someone who had this full and complete knowledge of the building trade. And they oversaw the work on the work site itself. They were a kind of supervisor. And then when he moved on, others came along and they rolled up their sleeves and they followed through with the task. That's how Paul is describing himself. And in particular, the one who came along to lead the church after Paul was someone named Apollos. And the Bible teaches that Apollos was a gifted preacher, but unfortunately, what followed was a popularity contest within the congregation. Some people took offense at Paul's very direct manner, and they said he's harsh at times. But Apollos was golden-tongued. He was an orator. And according to chapter 1 and verse 10 of 1 Corinthians, divisions, factions began to develop. There was this popularity contest, and Paul here says, wait a minute, we're doing the same work. Yes, we have different tasks. I laid the foundation. Apollos is building on it, but it's the same work. And the work that Apollos is doing, according to our passage, is building. This is the very word that in other contexts is translated to edify, an edifice, to construct, to build up. It's a construction term. In a moment, we're going to see that the foundation of this building is a person, Jesus Christ. It's a person, and the building is people. So, we are in the business, y'all. We are in the business of building lives for Jesus. One church I know in Texas has the motto, building great lives. I would simply add, that's a great motto, but building great lives for Jesus Christ. The Bible says elsewhere that we are living stones in God's temple. The construction business in the church is not brick and mortar, but rather it's lives. And it's not leaders like Paul and Apollos who are called to do this work, not merely them. Notice the last part of verse 10. But each one should build with care. This means that our life's task is the reaching of people for Christ and the spiritual development of those people in the church. So each of us needs to ask, in what way am I relating to and building up other lives? And I ask you to ask that of yourself. You see, dear friends, this is one of the reasons that I am never satisfied with people coming to believe that church is simply something that you attend. You attend and you leave. You come and you go. No, we come together and our lives intersect one another so that we can build one another up in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to think about your mission, your life, your calling, vis-a-vis -vis other people in the church that God has brought together here. The foundation of the church and therefore of our ministry is Jesus Christ. And so I say in the outline, we all have the same foundation. Verse 11 says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church finds its stability, its authority, and its direction from the message that comes from Jesus Christ and is about Jesus Christ. In other words, the message that has its source in Jesus and its focus on Christ, that's our foundation. Paul said, I came proclaiming Christ and him crucified in chapter 2. 
And it was a message that came from Christ and focuses on Christ. He says, I laid that foundation and there is no other foundation. So in verses 10 and 11, we see that we're all laborers together in the biblical mission. There are many tasks, just as Paul laid the foundation and Apollos then built up. Each one has a different task to perform, but it's the same mission on the same foundation. God cares about his work. He expects us to care about it as well. And we are all evaluated in God's work. Our task is the building of lives in the church, and the basis of God's evaluation of us is going to be according to our service in the lives of others. So just glance around you, and you begin to get an idea of the scope of your, your calling. Attach some names to the people that are seated around you. You say, but I don't know any of the people seated around me. Then we've got work to do. It's one of the reasons that we have bagels. We joke about the bagels and the coffee. The bagels and the coffee actually have a strategic purpose for you to be able to get to know one another for this very, this very kind of reason. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. There's two kinds of building material mentioned as figures of speech for what is of lasting value. I mean, if you really want to consider building an edifice, wood would be actually superior to gold in the building process. But the focus here is on the value of what's done and whether or not what is done will be lasting. So we're told of gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. It's quite a contrast. It's saying that some lives produce results that are valuable and lasting, as represented by the gold, silver, and precious stones. Other lives produce that which is worthless and temporary, wood, hay, and straw. And this imagery also implies that some work is costly and some is cheap. There's a verse at the close of the book of 2 Samuel in the first part of your Bible that we should really have memorized. King David, after great sin and great judgment, determined to offer a sacrifice to God, and so he purchased material for an offering to the Lord. The man from whom he purchased it offered to give it to the king free of charge, but David said this, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. The Christian life lived without sacrifice is the one that builds with wood, hay, and straw. It's about convenience. It's about fitting Jesus in and his mission in around my life. Not fitting my life around Jesus' mission. And so it cost me nothing. So here we have these two categories of building materials. And the value of our work is not readily accessible. How do you assess then our work? Not all that we accomplish for the Lord in the lives of people will be readily seen in this life. Verse 13 tells us about the evaluation that will take place. It says this, the day... That is, the day of the Bema seat, the day of the judgment seat of Christ, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Now notice the emphasis on a future day. 
Did you know that our work for the Lord in this life is not judged immediately after we die? But rather, this beam of this judgment seat comes later at the end of the age after everyone has died or been, or been raptured. And there is, I believe, a good reason for that, and it's because our work follows us. We cannot know the full extent of our impact until we reach the end of the age. There are ripple effects, thank God. Thank God that the people you are touching now will touch other people. And you won't know the full effect of that until the end of the age, and God will bring it to light. Yesterday, we celebrated the life of our brother, Steve Gazina. And Steve spent the last five or so years in prison, as many of you know. And God gave him great ministry there, great ministry. And I was able to read at that service yesterday a sampling of dozens of testimonies from inmates who had been impacted by Steve while there. Now, who knows the impact of those men now on others? But God knows it all, and God will bring it to light in the day. So we don't know the full extent of our impact until we reach the end of the age. The Apostle Paul is still reaping the rewards for his labor with each successive generation that arises. Friends, God knows the continuing impact of all of our deeds. He can trace it through the tangled tapestry of human history. But this is sobering to think about this. He knows about all those rewards, but he also knows about all that could have been done and the impact of what we refuse to do and fail to do and how the tapestry would have looked had we been obedient and more committed and determined in his service. One day, both will be manifest. And so as has been said many times, you have only one life and it will soon be passed. And only what is done for Jesus Christ will last. Verse 14. If any man's work, which he has built on, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he will be saved, yet so as through fire. As you think about the judgment seat of Christ, sobering. Let's use this opportunity to look at a passage like this, to end our time together, to say, Lord, at the beginning of this now new year, I recommit myself to you and your work. I look forward to pleasing you. I look forward to standing before you and say, Lord, I offer you my life and the fruit of the labor of my life on your behalf with the gifts that you have given me. But it is a sobering thing for us to consider. Too many people have thought about the judgment seat of Christ as a sort of purga, Protestant purgatory that people go to. It's not what it is. I think one person has said it well this way. The judgment seat of Christ might be compared to a commencement ceremony. At graduation, there is some measure of disappointment and remorse that one did not do better and work harder. However, at such an event, the overwhelming emotion is joy, not remorse. The graduates do not leave the auditorium weeping because they did not earn better grades. Rather, they are thankful that they have been graduated, and they're grateful for what they did achieve. To overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat of Christ is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. We should all have the same aim as the great Apostle Paul who wrote this chapter. And at the end of his life, you all remember what he was able to say. I have fought the good fight. And I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith, and there is now 
in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue our state of the church address. Where are we? Where are we going to go together as a congregation? But as we do that, every one of us needs to say, Lord, I want to be put fully in the mission for you. And so at the beginning, at the outset, I challenge you, I urge you, brothers and sisters, for us all to do that. Have a mindset that says, church is what I do on Sunday, but the church's mission is what I do with my life. Church is just what I do on Sunday. The church's mission is what I do with my life. So our take-home truth is this. God cares about his work, and he expects us to care about his work as well. Let's bow together. Father, we again thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence, to sing praise to you, to give back to you what you have first given to us. And then, Lord, to be instructed, and yes, for me, and I'm sure for other brothers and sisters, to be convicted about how easily entangled we get with the things of this world and this life, which is but temporary, wood, hay, and straw. Lord, help us to be people who care about building what is of value and what lasts with gold and silver and precious stones. Lord, as a result of that, may Community Bible Church be a church of people. Your church is your people. So may we be a church, a church of people, fully committed to the Lord Jesus, fully engaged in the work that you are doing here, and thanking you for the opportunity that we have to build on what you've already done in these first 20 years of our church. Oh Lord, we look forward to being able to present to you people yet unmet, people that we don't even know who are going to be brought to you through the efforts of your church. And to present to you, Lord, lives that have been built up in you and marriages that have been saved and solidified and all of the ways that you work through your church. Lord, help me, help all of us to make that our number one priority, Jesus Christ and the work that he is doing in his world. And we look forward to what you will accomplish and we will give you the praise for all of it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.